I see the thumbs, and now I have to just pull the glasses down a little bit. My new glasses, I'm very happy with my glasses. Hey, hey, before I get started really fast, a couple of things. If you've been paying attention, and you should pay attention, it's absolutely an extraordinary time to be watching the world affairs. China has gone to Israel and told Israel, began to tell Israel there would be repercussions if they don't do what China says militarily. And Israel, as you know, is in conflict with the Gaza Strip, and I'm hearing... I'm hearing some. Okay, it is kind of. Yes, it's hard for me to hear myself feeding back again. Anyway, uh, China is interfering in the Middle East, which w- what we would ex- expect. And, and Oh, good, thank you. And then, of course, Egypt has been found out to be giving information and military advice and, and military armament to Russia. So you're seeing a Russian-Egypt alliance. And you also, of course, know that Russia controls Iran. They control Syria. Uh, now they have Egypt, obviously. Turkey and Russia have a relationship. China overwhelmingly has a relationship. They're going to support Russia economically so that Russia can survive. Eventually, at some point, the Russian military will be Ezekiel 38's confederacy. So when you you see all of this potentiality, at least, going along, pay attention to it. Also, the most fantastic thing has happened. As you all are aware, we have what's called the Jim Webb Space Telescope. Okay, and that has completely debunked now the great, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Big Bang Theory. It's gone. And, of course, the Big Bang Theory, a lot of Christians really like the Big Bang Theory, but it is not compatible with Scripture. I'll explain that in a future day. I have too much material today. But pay attention, if you can, to what's going on. They are absolutely perplexed. They cannot figure out what the Jim Webb telescope is seeing and reconcile it with their standard model of cosmology. It doesn't fit. Okay, here we go. Going to be back on April the 30th. Uh, thanks, John. John, for your joke, telling me that uh, I am on every day is one 364th of a Cinco de Stevo. That was brilliant. So uh, Cinco de Stevo is very close. Anyway, April the 16th, 2023, lecture discussion number 196 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, uh, and Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. Okay, I'm going to be introducing some subjects today, and don't panic. Usually when I say that, the vast Internet audience runs screaming from their computer screens, and I never hear from them again. But note today the emphasis on introducing. I'm going to be introducing, okay? And the first thing to advance today, let me get erase Jim Webb. Uh, Jim Webb has become my favorite now, whether he knows it or not. What we're going to introduce today, I didn't get the R in there very well, is fractals. Fractals. And you'll confront fractals in your life as you, conti- as you consider to consider the, um, continue to consider the magnificence of, mag- of mathematics. And now half the audience is gone. I know that. It's how it works. But fractals are fantastically interesting. And especially when you consider the theology of mathematics, because mathematics is a theological construct. And as you know, mathematics and uh, oops, remark on that. Okay, mathematics and numbers—they testify of God. Mankind did not create mathematics. God Himself is the creator of mathematics. We merely discover what He has exposed in His creation. And fractals are ubiquitous in the creation. They're a mathematical process. And they are everywhere in the, in the creation. Mankind cannot and did not place fractals into our environment, our ecology. Mankind has no capability to do something like that. Okay, so what is a fractal? If you, raise your hand if you know it. Never raise your hand here. But if you did raise your hand, would you raise your hand and tell me that you know what a fractal is? I doubt it. But it's, again... Everyone, every Christian should know about fractals. A fractal is a geometric shape that when it is fragmented, 
Okay, uh, I'll, I'll give you bro- broccoli really fast. When you cut a piece of broccoli, it looks like a piece of broccoli, but it's a smaller piece of broccoli. But it still looks like broccoli. Now that's a fractal. A fractal is a geometric shape that when it's fragmented, each division is a replica of the original. That is a fractal. And I should add that fractals are irregular shapes, and snowflakes are usually the common example of a fractal. You can take a snowball and cut it into how many snowflakes? Divide it. And what will those snowflakes look like? And obviously fractal, the word fractal has its uh, linguistic uh, origin attached to fracture. So that's where it comes from. It is a piece of a larger material. Anyway, for today, mathematically, fractals are complicated, irregular, repeated, self-similarity patterns that are, guess what they are? Come on, you can guess. They are infinite. That, now you know why they're, they're theologically so important. Especially so when, we're, when they are, have been discovered in nature. Because you see, the earth is constantly generating self-replication, equipped distinct structures. That's what it's doing, new ones. And whether it's snowflakes or leaves or trees or broccoli or butterflies or lightning or clouds, just, uh, just a, a tremendous amount of fractals. Everywhere there's a fractal. In mathematics, you're, you're going to be asked to divide lines. So if I have a line, for example, how many times can I divide that line? And what will the line look like? It'll look like the line. The lines that I divide will look like the line that they came from, right? Okay, there you go. Fractals. The segments of which are smaller repub- I'm sorry, reproductions of the original and the division. The fractured lines are infinite if I kept dividing. How long is the line? How many fractals can I get out of a line? They all look like the line. They're all replicas of the line, but they're smaller replicas. I can barely talk today. And the great theological question then becomes, why? Why is this the design? And if Earth is so designed, is the universe likewise a fractal? Back to Jim Webb Telescope. Does fractal geometry apply to the universe? And obviously I submit yes to that question. Many times I've said that the universe is a fractal, not in so many words, but nonetheless it's, it's obvious. The universe is a giant fractal comprised of smaller reproductions of itself. Billions of galaxies containing trillions of stars. Every galaxy is a representation of the universe. Billions of systems, all of them connected by gravitational force, which is very important. Ultimately, this has led theologians to contemplate the human brain. You might have remembered me saying that the human brain is thought to be a replication, a fractal of the universe, which in itself is itself a fractal. So the human brain is a fractal of a fractal. No one considers the universe to be a fractal, but that's because it's They never think in infinity. So, again, that's why theologians, they begin to study the human brain, noting that it has a relationship to the design of the universe. All of this electricity, all of this motion, all all of this information that's in the brain, it's an incredible amount of neurological systems that are in the human brain, or an animal brain. The human brain is a fractal. If If you cut off a piece of the human brain, what will it look like? It'll look like the human brain. That's why you never eat broccoli. It's disgusting. Many theologians have postulated that the Star of David was an infantry alignment. But it it is more than that. Okay? The Star of David is not just an infantry alignment. They thought essentially it was a battlefield tactical formation. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, re- to repeat what I'm saying over and over and over again. It's a fractal. So therefore, it has an infinite aspect to it. Do you think that that is a coincidence? You can take every part of the, every star of the star of David and subdivide it into smaller stars and you can do it infinitely and an infinite amount of time. 
So now we arrive at the obvious question. Has the Aleph Tav, that's Jesus Christ, he's the Aleph Tav. Jesus Christ is infinite God in the, fre- in the flesh. Okay? Has he hidden infinity into the star of David? Is this the purpose of the design? I think when I compare an infantry system or a military alignment versus a, an infinite fractal, I think the infinite fractal is more likely the design. And, and so God is clearly a mathematician, and do fractals testify to him? And, and I'm su- suggesting to you that it is his signature, Romans 1.20. Infinity must come from infinity, in, and of course consciousness must arise from consciousness, and life from life, and existence from existence, and fractals have to come from something, and usually they come from another fractal. Infinity cannot arise from a finite source. Fractals then testify of an infinite God. How do they do that? Well, I've given you enough clues, I hope. Will the infinite God construct all, will construct an infinite city? Revelation 21. He will. He will construct an infinite city. That's how an infinite God thinks. Seems likely. Seems obvious. What is necessary to construct an infinite city? That would be infinity, an infinite being, the Aleph Tav, Revelation 1 8. He's the only one can do it. How long would it take to see everything that's in such an infinite city? If you're going to go, here we are in this new city of Jerusalem, the, all of us, and there's a, right now in the, in the room there's three of us. How long would it take the three of us to, to see everything in an infinite city? How, how many fractals are in a, an, an infinite city? And oh no, now we're talking about flat torus. Remember flat torus? Who wants me to keep going on flat torus? Nobody raised their hand. Let the, let the record show. And this is where we're going to stop with fractals. I just wanted to introduce it today. We're not going to do fractal curves. We're not going to do Mandelbrot sets. We're not going to do Fibonacci numbers and their theological implications. We're not going to do any of that today. Uh, You're free to begin cheering. You need to know. Eventually, you you will be excited about it. So how does infinity connect to free will? That ultimately is the question. And... Remember what subject we're in. We're still in the subject of predestination doctrine and Arminian doctrine of temporary or transitory salvation. So I'm going to ask the question again. How does infinity connect to free will? Since that's my diabolical intention for raising all of this fractal stuff. Does free will, human, animal, and angelic, does that bear witness to infinity? Is there a relationship between the infinite Aleph Tav God and free will? Infinity and free will. For those of you who are always ahead of, of the HDRP, you've obviously already predicted this question by the nature of what I've been doing for the last 15 or so weeks. And obviously I am proposing that only an infinite God can bestow free will. We have this connectivity immediately. And so, easy question. How is this, this, how is this the case? How is this so? Why is this so? Keep in mind that he gave us a fractal brain. So, uh oh, I didn't quit saying fractal, did I? He gave us a fractal brain. So I'm just saying. And he placed his breath of the spirit of life, consciousness into animals, humanity, and in some sense angels. He's done it to angels. We just don't know how he did it. They're spirit beings with physical capabilities, so they must have some kind of the breath of the spirit of life that's, that's circulating in them in some manner. Now feel free to ponder uh, and contemplate, brood, that's a better word, over the relationship of free will and infinity. What is required to allow free will for eternity? There will be free will in the new city of Jerusalem if that's an infinite city. How many people and how many angels and how many animals will be there? How much free will is that? I'm just asking for a friend. If I had a friend, that would be great. Why will free will be allowed for in eternity? There are those who think we can't have free will in the, in the new city of Jerusalem because we'll all go back to sin. No, we won't. We will never choose sin again. We've had enough of it. We've seen it. We, we, we know what it's done. We have a, we have a um, doctoral thesis in sin. It causes horrifying death. Why will free will be allowed for eternity? Because existence 
free will and existence are inseparable. They're indivisible. You can't divide free will and existence. Oh, wait, it's not a fractal. How many, how much free will fractal brains are going to be in the new eternal city of Jerusalem? Notice I said brains. I didn't say people. I didn't say angels. I didn't say animals. I could have said all three, but I tried to keep it short so I wouldn't run out of time. Oh, wait. Angels, animals, and humanity. How much free will are they going to generate in an eternal, infinite city? Do the math. Use your phones. Okay, speaking of math. Sharon from Texas sent me a math question. I'm surprised you said yay. Sharon is probably delighted that you didn't boo. But she sent me a math question because there's always math. And there's always more math. And there's always more, more math than there was more math. She wrote this. I have some dear friends who are convinced that flat earth is scriptural. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I bet I do. What are the odds? huh? Uh-huh, I do have an opinion. This is actually really a serious problem. It's a serious problem. The origin of the, of the flat earth from a biblical perspective. In other words, people who think they are using the Bible to create a biblical perspective that that validates flat earth. There's a lot of them. And they've gone through the centuries. And and generally, the verses that they will present or propose are Isaiah 11.12 and Job 37.3 and Revelation 7.1 and Matthew 4.8 and Psalm 104.5-6, Job 28.24 and Psalm 75.3. That's generally where the argument begins when you talk to somebody who wants to convince you theologically that they uh, that the flat earth position, the flat earth disc position is the correct position and that the Bible teaches it. Ironically, they will also bring up Job 26.10 and it's cited very many times by the flat disc earth people. Notice I keep saying disc because that's, that's what they advocate. That's their advocacy. And they, and they, they present Job 26.10 as evidence for their position and that is an error. Because I'm going to tell you that Job 26.10 is the opposite of what they think it is. Job 26.10 proclaims a spherical, ellipsoidal, I'm sorry, ellipsoidal. Ellipsoidal, ah, I can't say it. Ellipsoidal. Where's my... An ellipsoidal. Okay. What's wrong with me? I'm getting old. Gosh. Ellipsoidal. There we go. Have to go back to geometry teaching. An ellipsoidal earth. And that was written, Job, that's the time that it was written by Job. Job wrote that. That's astonishing. That's pre mosaic. Job is before Moses. And he says the earth is a sphere. A sphere, not a sphere. No one thought the earth was a sphere. The lone exception was the Bible. Job 26.10. And it's been that way. They, Job was obviously the first person to declare that the earth is a spherical or orb, if you will. And so outside of theology, the inner church, the secular environments, uh, what I'm speaking about, the secular, so not outside of the, of the church, let me say it that better, the secular environmentalists, um, they have a, they, they, the flat earth is actually a cynical construct. So when you hear from these kinds of people, they're not, they're not serious about, they don't believe the flat earth. They have sarcastic intentions. They present counter arguments to the standard model. And they do it, so here's the standard model of the earth that rotates in an orbit around the sun and all of this, and we have the moon and we have all the other planets and they're all the same size and shape, or not the same size, but the same shape. And they have this gravitational structure that they never leave, and they all rotate. And they, when they present the counter-arguments to the standard model, they're doing it to illustrate that most people have the inability to defend heliocentricity. Heliocentricity is the everything revolves around the sun. Okay. Geocentricity would be the position that everything revolves around the earth. And geocentricity, of course, was the popular view of the church for centuries until it was debunked. Job predicted it would be debunked in 2610. And I'll give you an example of how these folks who are sarcastic and who are cynical, how they 
how they present theories on gravity. They will present their, their, these theories on gravity, and then they will dare you to refute them. And they do it to Christians all the time. And it's all over the Internet, and you'll see them attack. And they, they discover that Christians are illiterate, and they can't compete, and they can't respond, because Christians are dumb. Are Christians dumb? Yeah. Unfortunately, we are. The church has dumbed itself down to the point where it's almost ridiculous. It, can it get more dumb? It can. But it's a very high level of stupid right now. And many, many of these, especially the super churches, the the grand structure churches. When the pastor has, pastor and his wife have a billion dollars, something is wrong. There's an old adage that says that when you see a rich politician, you're looking at a crook. I think you could say the same thing in the church. You're looking at somebody that has a billion dollars. You're looking at somebody that isn't serious about what he's doing. Anyway, I'm ranting there. So what they will do is they're going to present gravity theories and they're going to say, you don't know how to refute them and I'm making fun of you because you don't have any idea what you believe and you don't even know what your own Bible says. And I'm going to bring up all of these verses and dare you to tell me I'm wrong and you can't do it. That really happens in the academic arena, right? And they will say the earth is a flat disk that accelerates upwards, for example, to explain gravity. So we have a flat disk and here, and so when, when something drops, it's not going towards the earth, or we think it drops, but really the earth is moving towards it. That's their position. And they will dare you to say that that's wrong and prove it. You can't prove it, they'll tell you. And that's what your Bible says is true. So, and they also, they say it's, there's an illusion of gravity. It's not really gravity. It's movement of the disk. Prove me wrong. And you will very rarely find somebody that can take them apart, which is really not that difficult. It takes about 45 minutes of studying. But Christians don't study. Not this kind of stuff. Again, how many know about fractal? And gravity is explained also as density. I won't get into that, but it's again, they challenge their opponents to disprove their positions. And they're usually overwhelmingly victorious. And so you have to recognize that the flat earth people are not stupid. They think you're stupid or we're stupid. That's how they function. But there also are Christians that actually think it's true. Okay? Which is not great. What's that? No, they can't. But they think the Bible supports the position. So they agree. On the other hand, there are evolutionary atheists, free will deniers, and they gleefully co-opt the church Christians' flat earth assertions and then announce that the entire Bible is untrue on the basis that the Bible, the church, teaches that flat earth discosmology. That's what the, the church teaches. So the whole, if that's, if they know that's not true, and if you're teaching it, then they, then they are able to say the Bible's not true, right? Basic transitive property, because there's always math. The Bible does not teach flat earth disk cosmology and the church should never do it because it's certainly nonsense. So there are ramifications that extend significantly outward here from this discussion and some of them are really, really sad. And, and uh, there's also this attempt to bring shame or discredit or confusion to the perfect 1 Corinthians 13.10. They're, they're going to say the Bible again is flawed. If you allow that position, then you we are you're in real big trouble. And your children, your grandchildren, are going to come back, come home from whatever school. Somebody said to my grandchildren, who go to a Christian school, that the Big Bang is how God made the how He created all of matter. No, no, He didn't do it that way. I'll explain that next week, or or, I'm sorry, on April 30th. If you don't know why that's not why that is an invalidated, not biblical position, then Come back. We'll take it on. And of course, Jim Webb, Jim Webb just destroyed it. So now you should obviously know it's not biblical. If Jim Webb can destroy it, then it can't be real, can it? Anyway, there, there's, this is an attempt to bring shame and discredit and confusion to the church, to the perfect, to the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13.10, as I said, the word of God is discredited by many of these views. And my usual initial response to these kinds of things, for example, the four corners argument that comes my way occasionally, and not very often anymore, people are, don't do it. When I started out, I got all kinds of stuff like this. Now it's all gone away. 
In Genesis 1, 16 through 18, one of the purposes of the sun and the moon is not to, what, the singular purpose, it's all discovered, and not discovered, it's declared in Scripture. The purpose, now there are other purposes, but the purpose is the sun and the moon is to separate, to divide the light from the darkness. That's a crucial intention of God, Genesis 1, 3. He wants to divide the light from the darkness. And and the faithful angels, when they saw the light dividing from the darkness, what did they do, Job 38, 7? They rejoiced. They were thrilled. We're, we're getting the darkness separated from the light. I often said many times, he did not get rid of the darkness, did he? You need to know why. Remember, God spoke and set everything into motion. Everything. All things spin. All things vibrate. All things respond to a resonant frequency. It's a fundamental of the creation. Geocentricity then must be... It's got, it, it must become convoluted. Because if the earth doesn't move, we have problems, Houston. And so the geocentricity people, again, they have to, they have to modify their, their structure in order to separate the light from the darkness with a flat earth disk that is stationary. i got a flat earth disk. It doesn't move. How am I going to separate light from darkness? It's tough. Oh no no that's there's a difference between separating light from darkness and there's a and gravitational theory that is flat earth theory and of course it's not real they don't think that it's real they just want you to know that you can't do you can't argue with them and beat you down into nothing and unfortunately they're right to repeat where am i dividing the darkness from the light that is dividing good from evil that's that's what it's the symbol is genesis 3:22 it's an inviolable biblical principle the sun is a symbol of jesus christ what does he call the sun the great light the greater light the greatest light okay obviously that's a reference to jesus christ jesus christ is the light of life john 8:12 genesis 1:3 he removes evil that's what he's going to do it's part of his ministry to remove evil now he won't uh, he won't extinguish evil in the sense that he'll anni- he won't annihilate it. He will capture it. He will contain it in the lake of fire. Matthew twenty five forty one. He is the light that brings life, salvation, the greater light. Again, the greatest light. That's uh, all of that is the light of life. John eight twelve. All of that. That's who he is. And when you start taking away his ability, you have some kind of weird way of he separating light from darkness. Then again, you're in theological mud. Anything that attacks or contradicts that center, that Christ as the great light, has got to be rejected. Mankind is not in the center. The earth, if you put the earth in the center, you put mankind in the center. Mankind is not in the center. Animals are not in the center. Angels are not in the center. They're created things. Who's in the center? Jesus Christ is in the center. Okay? Genesis 1.9, the tree of life was in the what? In the center, it's in the mist. The center of the garden, Revelation 22.2, Ezekiel 47.7, Ezekiel 47.12, provide information to Revelation 22.2. What's Revelation 22.2? That's the tree of life in the center. And and so does Matthew 27.38, Mark 15.27. When you put them all together, the tree of life is in the mist. It's in the center. The center of the liver, liver. The center of the, the center and living is you liver every time. Ah. The tree of life is in the center of the, the river of life, the living river of life. That's where it is. Christ is crucified in the what? In the mist. He's between Two robbers, right? Jesus Christ is between the living and the dead. Number 1748, I've got Aaron. I have a plague. He gets the censer. What does he do? He runs into the mist of the plague between the living and the dead, it says. It's literally the same. He is a typological portrait of what Christ is doing. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the tree of life. That's that's what he is. Tree of life is a symbol for him. He is the life. John eleven twenty five. In the now distance path, distant path, 
All I have is distant path. Past. Gosh. You're watching me completely collapse as I get older, huh? In the distant past, I have presented my opinion and my belief often that the tree of life and the tree of death both were placed by God. Duh. And these two locations are known by the angelic realm. They know where those two trees were. Exactly. They have GPS, I assume. And they know where they are. Satan definitely knows where they were. Everybody knew where they were and why they were there. So both faithful and, and the angels that were in the army of Satan are fully aware of where those two trees were put by God. In other words, there's a cause traceable to the event. God put them there. What's the cause that is traceable to the placing of the tree of life and the tree of death? Some will call it the response of God. We can't do that. That's heresy, right? Because he's outside of time. But uh, as long as you know it's heresy, you can at least try. The planting of these two trees, they contain the statement of God as to the fall of Satan and his one-third that went with him. That's why he put those trees in the middle of the garden. That's why he has two trees. He's responding, not really, but he is uh, revealing his thoughts is what he's doing by doing this. These trees were placed perfectly. They were placed exactly where they needed to be. The question then explodes, right? Why? Why are they in the midst of the garden, the center of the garden? What else has occurred? And the obvious question begins the, begins the path to the solution. What else has occurred on those exact positions? Something special happened here. What was it? Obviously, it is not something that Adam did. Because are put there before Adam is in place. And the animals are in place. You can make that case. Obviously, the tree of evil, the tree of certain death, evil and certain death, is not in the new city of Jerusalem. It's not there. Only the tree of life is there. The tree of life is in the midst of the new city. And the obvious reason, again, is obvious. There's no more death in the new city. It's deathless. All it has is life. No darkness. All it has is light. Satan was the anointed cherubim, as you know. i got to look at the time. I'm doing okay. He was the anointed cherubim, and he was in the mineral garden, and he walked in the midst of the fiery stone. So he is in the midst of the garden. And that's the first Eden, Ezekiel 28.13, Ezekiel 28.14. He walked in the midst. He was on the mountain of God. That's the cherubim. He is the highest ranking of the highest ranking angels. That's what he is. And I'm clearly attaching Ezekiel 28, 12-19 to Genesis 1, 9-10 and Genesis 3, 3 and Revelation 22, 2. I'm saying that where Satan was and where he walked and where his positioning was is reflected in the two trees. The point for now, while finally a point, is have no view, have no position that removes Christ from the center He's got to be in the center. Or in any way confuses that great truth of him being in the center. Where will the throne of Christ in the millennium be? Where will it be? It will be in the mist. It will be in the center. What geographic point will that throne of Christ be when he is in the Holy of Holies, sitting on his throne in the millennium? What spot is he on? have no position that obfuscates his act of dividing the light from the darkness. Keep Jesus as the one that does that and keep him in the mist. Have no position that is in conflict with the voice of God. The word of God speaking everything into motion. Everything into wave-particle duality. All things are in motion. All things spin, vibrate, and resonate. Have all things respond to the voice of God. John 1, 1 through 1-4. The word. Gravity is the observer. I don't know if you know that, but they are beginning to recognize that gravity is the observer that, that takes wave duality and converts it into particle. The quantum physicists are going, gravity is really happens to be really important here. It's the observer effect. I've said for, I was going to say centuries, but I'll say 25 years, that Christ is the observer. God is the observer that collapses waveforms. And they're beginning to recognize that gravity is that. Now it's just a short little distance to go from gravity to Christ. Because Christ is gravity. He says so, right? Christ is the person. He is the force. Have no silly description of gravity. 
don't allow somebody to present a silly position of gravity. Say, no, gravity is Christ. He has to be in the middle. Everything has to move, spin, vibrate. Isaac Newton is right. Jesus Christ collapses waveforms into particles. Critical information. Abandon unbiblical descriptions of gravitational phenomena. Somebody gives you some, uh, the flat earth disc people give you some goofy gravitational position and say, no, gravity is a force, it's a person. And we have quantum physics to prove it. And again, gravitational phenomena is a great mystery. Gravity is the great mystery, frankly, uh, of, the, of the creation. Only Christ can be the answer, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. So I have Colossians 1, 15 through 18. I have John 1, 3. I have Hebrew 1, 1 through 3. All reveal the mystery that is the invisible made visible, clearly seen. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Colossians 1, 15. Gravity is an invisible attribute that is clearly seen. I will demonstrate that. Here is an invisible attribute and is clearly seen. And I fall down a lot. So I understand gravity a lot. As you know, I fall down ladders a lot. I have the scars to prove it. Would you like to see? Well, I try to, as you know, I tried to get up on a a lift and we painted the front of the house 40 feet high on a lift and we were all panicked trying to do it. When I say all of us, that's me and Lori. Who was panicked the most? That would be me because I fall off of ladders. But I hope to go on a 40-foot ladder this summer that should be fun. I used to. I used to grab a ladder, a 40-footer, me and Dickie. I had a partner. And we would race around the building. See who could get to the back of the building first, carrying a 40-foot ladder. It's fully extended. Did it all the time. We were idiots. Anyway, where am I? Okay, I know about the whatabouters here. They're going to gnash their teeth over Job 26.10. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the earth. That's what it says. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the earth. They don't like that one. They don't like it. Genesis 9.14, though. Ooh, what about Genesis 9.14, Genesis 9.16? What's that all about? That's the Noahic covenant. And what did he do there? Oh, he gave us a sign. And what is the sign? Oh, it's a rainbow. What is a rainbow? We see half of it. It's a circular sign that he draws on the earth, isn't it? So not only did he do it on the horizon of the face of the earth, Job 26.10, but he did it in 9.14, of Genesis. That's the sign of the Noahic covenant, the forever, eternal, unconditional promise that God makes with every living creature of all flesh on the earth. It's a circle. We can obviously see that the rainbow is a circular sign. Genesis 9 is definitive and should be mentioned every time in this discussion. You put Job 26.10, Genesis 9.14.9.16. Put them together and say, there, deal with that. They can't, they won't, and you're done. But the flat disc whataboutters are not convinced. They bring up Job 28.24, and they usually throw that at the wall, and they hope that's going to stick. For he looks to the ends of the earth. So they say the the earth has ends, so it must be flat. It can can be a disk, I guess. But usually they have it as a square. So I have the ends to the earth. And they say the spheres don't have ends or four corners. That's what they argue. They'll shout it at you. Deal with that, HTRP. And you'll you'll hear the verses, Matthew 4, 8, Job 37, 3, Revelation 7, 1. Therefore, the earth, again, is an unmoving flat disk. But guess what? I'll give you a circular thing. You want to make that a sphere, go ahead. Right now, it's a circle. What do circles have? Oh, they have diameters. What's the end of the diameter? Oh, there's one. There's another end. How about these ends? So spheres do have ends. We call them diameters. The line of the diameter ends at the outside edge of the sphere. They don't, but they don't have four corners. Well, guess what? They have four directions. And you know they have four directions. We can go east, west, north, and south, can't we? Uh-oh. Buy a compass. Use your phone. Then they say, how did, they say this again, how did Satan show Jesus God all of the kingdoms from the earth? Well, where did he go? 
He went to a high mountain. I have a question. How high is that mountain? What mountain is that? Remember, he's walking among the fiery stones and he is on the high mountain of God. So is that the mountain he goes on? How high is the mountain of God? Ezekiel 28.14 How long did Satan take to, t- to do this? You, do you think, oh, I just took him up there and gave him five seconds and then we left? How long was he on the high mountain with Christ showing him all the kingdoms? I just want to know because I'm a curious guy. Could both Satan and God himself, because that's Jesus Christ, God himself, see all of the kingdoms of the earth from the Ezekiel 28.14 mountain? That is an exceedingly high mountain. How high is it? I say duh, especially duh. Jesus Christ is rotating and he's spinning, and he's putting into motion and he's vibrating and he's resonating his earth and all of the universe for that matter. He's doing all of that at the same time. He's on a high mountain. Is that a mountain that's on the earth? That's the high mountain of God. Where is the high mountain of God? Not on earth. So they're on the high mountain of God and they're watching the earth rotate, spin, vibrate, resonate. And all the universe do it. Can he see all the kingdoms from there? He is omniscient. Does he need binoculars? Does Satan, Revelation 12:10, Job 1, 8 through 11, Zechariah 3, 1 through 2, have access to the throne of God? Absolutely he does. He's the accuser of the brethren, right? Can I keep going and going and going on this subject? What do you think? Time is short. We must pretend to move along. Okay, so here we go, Matthew 6.13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation. That's what we're supposed to pray. Lead me not into temptation. Why do we pray this? I'll tell you why. Because God did not predestine sin. That's why we pray it. Oh, wow. Here comes the spears and our arrows. You see, James 1.13 is definitive. Being tempted is what he begins to say. No stuttering here. No equivocation in Job 1.13. Let no one being tempted say by God, I am being tempted. Don't say that. Now go back. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What is the temptation of the evil one? Is it to say you're... Never mind, I'll continue along here. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But no one say, being tempted by God, that I am being tempted, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Actually, the actual Hebrew says this, for God cannot be tempted, is by evil's tempts, now he himself. It's actually not tempted, it's tempeth. So that's the, that's the Greek. I recited the literal, literal Greek there, in case you found yourself wondering what I'm doing. Now, I brought up James 1.13 previously and rightfully attached it to Matthew 6.13 because I think that's how it works. The best Greek, best Greek, the best Greek translation of Matthew 6.13 is, and not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the wicked one because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory for the ages truly. So let me read that again. The best Greek translation of Matthew 6.13 is this, and not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the wicked one because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory for the ages, truly. By associating Matthew 6.13 and James 1.13, again, it should always be done that way. You should tell yourself, right, James 1.13 next to Matthew 6.13. We're able to begin to find the meanings of both of them by putting them together. We start by being aware of the four Greek words rendered by the translators in James 1.13. So those words are as being tempted, being tempted, tempted, and tempeth. Three of them occur only at James 1.13. So there's no other place to, to reconcile that. In other words, I don't have any other translation of that Greek word. There's three of those in that verse that are never anyplace else but James 1.13. So how do I... How do I make a determination of what he what tried to say? Well, I have to have context. And that's where Matthew 6.13 comes in. Okay, so And the ones that are only at James 1.13 are being tempted and the tempted. and the, So really what you've got is you've got four words that are tempted, right? And the second, the third, and the fourth are singular. In other words, they're only at James 1.13. 
the first being tempted as opposed to the second being tempted. The second being tempted is the second tempted of James 1.13. Everybody got that? The answer is no. Yeah. It gets worse. Because it always gets worse before it gets worse, right? James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. So I got another temptation. Now I'm a defy. How about James 1.14? A man, however, is tempted by the, by the own desire being drawn away and being enticed. Tempted again. That's six of them. If you've been doing the math, because there's always more math, right? So far, six times temptation is the subject. Now, whenever I come across in Scripture this level of repetition, because he's going tempted, 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 okay? It's got to be Matthew 6.13. Got to be. Alarms are going to sound off. This is danger Will Robinson territory. So obviously we should endeavor to perfectly translate these Greek words to the best of our imperfect capabilities. And again, we have three of them that only appear once in James 1.13. We can't, what are we going to do with that? Already you should recognize the problem. The imperfect, the system is, we're systemically flawed human beings. We're attempting to resolve the perfect which was, has come. 1 Corinthians 13.10 again, I should say. Alternate renderings of 1 Corinthians 13.10 is this, this one. is the complete which has come. Not the perfect which has come, but the complete which has come, where Kurt Goodall is now very happy, isn't he? You might want to know this, but Albert Einstein wanted to go to the United States, and one of the reasons he did it was to be with Kurt Goodall, because he said Kurt Goodall was a brilliant mind, and he wanted to be around somebody that was smarter than him. In other words, Einstein saw Goodall as, an, as a, a distant intellect. Anyway, Matthew 6.13, And not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the same Greek word as James 1.12. I won't go into the Greek words because I've run out of time, but it's P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-N. Perisma. James 1.12 Typically, it's transliterated as trial. So there's a judgment or under trial here. There is a judicial procedure perhaps here. 1 Timothy 6.9 adds, and a snare to temptation. Into temptation and a snare. So these words are translated, that word, the first one, is translated in, in those kinds of senses. So what's the point? Is there a point? Yeah, a point. Jesus Christ, Creator God, instructs us to pray these words and lead us not into temptation. It then becomes of great importance to know God's definition of that word, P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-N. Now, that's a translator took that word and decided what it meant. But it only occurs in James 1.13. So we need to know the entirety of P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-N. And James 1.15 ends information. Then when lust having conceived gives birth to sin, and sin having become fully grown brings forth death. Note that fully grown description there. How does sin become fully grown? It begins as temptation and becomes fully grown sin. How does it do that? What's the fully grown process? How do I become a fully grown sinner with fully grown sin? What's that? I could not hear you. That's right. You're exactly right. I think about killing somebody and eventually I kill somebody. That's the process of a murderer, a psychopath. But it first gets in their mind and becomes fully grown. Anyway, the Greek word there for sin in uh, James 1.15 has 27 occurrences. And in every case, it is translated sin. So it's sin. We got, we got mathematical certainty almost there. So James is concluding that the temptation of James 1.13.1.14 happens to be sin because he put it in 1.15. All I had to do was read one more verse. Temptation is sin. And I am obviously now bringing Genesis 3, 4 through 6. The woman saw and she lusted and she acted on it, right? And the, and the sin became fully grown. The fruit was to be desired. And, and we have again 1 Timothy 2, 14. Adam did not do that. He was not deceived. That's so critical, as you know. Both were put on trial, but their trials were not the same trial, Romans 5, 14. With all these pieces, and there are many other more pieces, allow me to suggest the following paraphrase of James 1, 12 through 15. Now, a lot of people are not going to like this. 
I gotta pull my pants up to do that. Blessed is the man who endureth trial, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Let no man say when he desires sin, lusts for sin, that God is the source of sin, for God cannot be the source of evil, neither has God caused sin in any man. <coughs> That's what I think is going on in James 1, 12 through 15. So now I know what's going on in Matthew 6, 13. James 1, 16. Do not err, he says, my beloved brethren. So don't make a mistake here. That's the same thing as Paul said. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Don't make a mistake here. And I'm very aware that a multitude now of angry super-determinists are going to rise up and accuse me of heresy. It's only fair because I accuse the super-determinists of heresy. So it's a fair fight. I'm nothing but fair. But they're going to say, how dare you paraphrase that, right? Well, I think that I'm far more accurate than they are. I'm not proposing that the Bible be reworded. I'm only connecting Matthew 6:13, Genesis 3:4-7, Genesis 3:12-13, 1 Timothy 2:14, Romans 5:14. That's all I'm doing is connecting all of those together. And again, many others I left out I'm, that I think are directly attached to James 1:12 through 16. And I'm convinced that Matthew 6:13 and James 1:12 through 16 are feathered together in a way that we can't, they're interwoven. We can't separate them, in my view. And therefore, the temptation being referenced by James 1, 12 through 16 is to believe the lie. It is to, where he says, do not err. I think when you believe the lie about temptation and sin, you're making the error that he's referring to. You're, you're erring as the woman erred. And thus you're deceived by the lie of Satan as revealed by Job 1, Job 2, and Genesis 3. The serpent is more cunning than any creature. Give him some credit, Genesis 3.1. Matthew 4, Luke 4, Exodus 17, 1-7, Numbers 23-6, Numbers 21, 5 and 6. Humanity is no match for him. No are the angels. Jude 9, Michael says, I can't argue with you. God has to argue with you. I can't do it. That's why he's saying that, because he understands how cunning this creature is. And, God, and Satan's lie is disclosed in Job 1 and Job 2, Psalm 10. And, and that lie has infiltrated into the church and has become the religion of the atheist evolutionists and the particle physicists all simultaneously. To the point now that colleges withhold biology degrees to all who do not swear devotion to super-deterministic evolutionary atheism. You can't get a degree in biology today unless you, you repeat the mantra. And I have spent over 25 years of my so-called career urging Bible students to see the complexity, the implication that Adam was not deceived by the lie of Satan. He didn't buy it. He knew God's character. The woman was deceived, uh, Genesis 3.3. And this truth is not simple. It's astonishing. When Jesus Christ himself uses the word temptation, pray therefore in this manner, and do not lead us into temptation. When he said pray that, do not lead us into sin. What are you saying there? I could say it this way. You do not lead us into sin. I'm acknowledging every time I pray that prayer that God does not lead me into sin. So who leads me into sin? Me. But deliver us from the cunning serpent's lie. Deliver us from that. The wicked one, Matthew 6.13, I submit it is beyond dispute that he is, Christ is referring to the lie of the wicked one, Job 1, Job 2, Psalm, Job 1, Job 2, Psalm 10, Genesis 3. And then I insist that uh, the logical conclusion to all of that is John, I'm sorry, James 1, 12 through 16. Does Jesus Christ, the great rememberer, Luke 22:42, does the great remember, does he remember? Does he remember Genesis 3-4? The woman being deceived. Does he remember Job 1, 9-11? Does he remember Psalm 10-6, 10-8, Isaiah 14, 12-14, John 8, 44? Satan is a murderer and a liar. You have to begin there. And if you find yourself believing his lie, then you have erred greatly. Christ, in my humbleness opinion, obviously is referencing the lie of Satan in Matthew 6-13. And the 
And when you put James 1, 12 through 16 alongside of it, then you get it. And once you grasp this, the significance of Matthew 6.13 just explodes throughout all the Scripture. You begin to find that lie everywhere. You're not going to believe that God is the author of evil or the source of sin. You're not going to believe that. And now you're going to find it everywhere. It's just a big boom shakalaka. For example, Job 1.6-12, the entire angelic, faithful, and fallen angels assembled to hear Satan present his lie. That's where Satan is saying what his lie is. The lie that says that God has decreed, God has predestined evil, and therefore God is the source of evil, the causing ancient of evil. He is the one that makes sin be sin. He did it. That's the lie of Satan. At the end of this confrontation, God makes a behold. I should jump. Behold, statement. Behold. So right away we know something amazing is coming. A great doctrinal truth has been exposed. Job 1.12 And the Lord said to Satan, Behold! All that Job has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his life or his person, if you wish. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's amazing because that's John 13:27 and Matthew 4:10. So you can find that verse, find compliments to it there. God allows Satan to attack Job. Why does God allow this? Acts 14:16. God allows. Why does he allow? Why does God allow? Got to know that. That helps you defeat the lie of Satan. Keeping in mind the context of this confrontation is what? Context is the hedge. The hedge. Critical. Satan, who has been searching the entire earth, Job 1.7. Obvious question. What or who is Satan searching for? Who is he trying to find? What's he trying to find? God makes it clear that Satan was searching for a human being that he could cite as the evidence of the lie. Satan's lie. He would say, if I can find some evidence of it, then my lie is not a lie. It's true. And the lie is repeated in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And again, Satan is confronting God there too, right? He's confronting Christ, though he may not have been aware of it. He doesn't. He didn't know that the second Adam is God himself. Anyway, Job 1 and Job 2 cannot be studied apart from Matthew 4, Luke 4, Exodus 17, 1-7, and Genesis 3-4. Something we, by we I mean me, have barely begun to do, but I have mentioned it quite a few lectures previously. I hope you heard those. For today, just note the complexity of this exchange between God and his anointed cherub. God, omniscient God, asked Satan a question. Did you find Job? Does God know the answer to that question? You were all over the earth. You were walking the earth. Just like the fiery stones, Ezekiel 28. You're walking the earth. You're looking for somebody. Did you find Job? How many did he find before Job? Did he find any before Job? Did you find Job? Are you considering Job? God says. That's two questions in a row. In a row. Are you considering Job as evidence for your lie? Duh. Obviously God knew that Satan had found Job. It's at the advantage of being omniscient and omnipresent. And he knew that, Jay, that Satan was intending to argue his deceitful... Remember, the whole angelic realm has gathered to hear this. What's it about? And he knew that Satan was intending to argue his deceitful evil slander, utilizing... What Satan believed was Job's special status. What's Job's special status? How did Satan find Job? Ask those questions. He's looking for something. How cunning is he? He's incredible. He's not just going on. He's going to confront God with this. And not, not because he believes he can defeat God, but because he believes he can get another third, right? That's the plan. Can I convince some more? Can I get a total rebellion? If I get them all, what's God going to do? He's going to imprison every single one of his angels in the lake of fire? God declares Job to be an upright and blameless man. There is none like Job on the earth. So he's validating that Job was absolutely unique here. There's none like Job. He's exhibit A for Satan to submit now because of that. And notice that there was none like Christ on earth when he walked among us, when he walked among humanity. Christ is sinless, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5, and thus blameless. 
So you see this linkage between Jesus, God, and Job, and we should know why this is so. Now you can attach Satan attacking Christ. See, he's attacked Adam. He's attacked Job. Now he's trying to attack Christ. Matthew 4, Luke 4. Satan has a retort to God. Have you? There is none like Job on the earth. That's what God says. And Satan responds to that. He has a rebuke, if you will, a retort. He says, Job fears God for nothing because God has built a hedge around Job. So what is the hedge? Is the hedge salvation? Answer, answer that. I don't think it is. Why isn't it salvation? Now we have the crux of Satan's premise. Satan is accusing God of providing special protection, special status for Job. Satan is before all of the angels alleging that some are, <coughs> are given hedges. <coughs> In the case of Job... He, he has an exclusive prominence given by God. And so the reciprocal is inferred here. Remember, he's cunning. He's inferred the... Re- he's not going to say it out front. He's going to make you recognize it from inference. If some are recipients of a protective standing, then others are excluded. And the gift is withheld from them. The hedge. They don't get the hedge. Job's got the hedge. Nobody else has got the hedge but Job is what he's saying. So Job says... Job, says Satan, is only faithful because he has been specially equipped. He has been selected by God to be faithful. And if God were to revoke the hedge, his pre-selected position, his pre-selected capacity, then Job would curse God to his faith. Again, the hedge is not salvation. We know it's not salvation because if God removes the hedge, then God's removing salvation. And that's not going to be the case, right? So you got all of that, don't Don't get confused. And God's response is amazing here. Pay attention to what Satan says in the presence of the entire angelic host. He demands that God stretch out his hand and kill Job's children, animals, servants, and property. Job 1.11. Does God do that? No. He doesn't kill him. Now, people will say, well, God kills people in other places in the Bible. We'll get to that next time. Did God remove the hedge? And allow Satan to go after Job. I'm going to say no, he didn't. He didn't remove the hedge. Who told you there's a hedge around Job? Satan did. Did you believe him? Yeah, well, yeah, you did, right? But there's no hedge. The hedge is a lie, right? He always lies. He's a lying murderer. Okay? And he allows Satan's free will. Notice what he does. He gives Satan the free will to do what? To kill Job's servants, animals, and children. What's that? But not Job. Because God has every intention of resurrecting all of that Satan kills. You can't over, you can't outsmart me. Okay? So again, what does Satan say the hedge is? What does Satan say the hedge is? That's what we have to figure out. And what does God say the hedge is? God says there is no hedge. So now we're now we're in business, right? I have I have about nine or ten things. I had to write rewrite a lot of this because it's a it's very difficult to keep it all on track. On track. What is the hedge? Answer that. Satan infers that the hedge is what a pre-selection. It's a pre. It's a gift that he has. It's something that no one else has. He is selected for this. That's what Satan says the hedge is. Well, that's the definition of predestination. Obviously, I'm presenting Job 1, 6 through 12 as a refutation of predestination of individual salvation. If Job does not have this predestination status, well, then who has it? He doesn't have it. Because God does it just by inference. Again, you have to be able to read between the lines. God's saying, go get him. There's no hedge. You're lying. Take it on, baby. So say it's a Job does not have a hedge. He does not have a predestinated, individualized salvation given by God to some and not to all. He doesn't have that. What's the lie of Satan say? Oh my gosh. He says the opposite of that. God's the source of evil. God says you do what you want to do. You have free will. Get the Chaldeans in there and have them kill these people and these animals and burn all this stuff down. 
do that. You are able to motivate evil people to do evil things. I agree with that. But that evil is your will. And so understand, God does not remove the hedge because there is no predestination of individualized salvation. There is no hedge. And it is not about salvation. Satan is lying about the hedge because Satan lies about everything. And so Satan calls it a hedge. He's the one that brought that information. Can Job curse God and therefore forfeit his salvation? Because that's what Satan says. He will curse you, which means he will forfeit his salvation. Can can Job forfeit his salvation? No, he can't. Satan implies it's possible. So Satan's on the side of who? Arminianism. He's also on the side of who? Super Calvinism. He's on both of them. Notice Satan is lying about Calvinism and Arminianism. He says they're both true and neither are true. And this extraordinary balancing, this fine-tuning of salvation and uh, and all of these elements that are here, that, that can only be accomplished by the infinite God. Let me put it this way. He freely gives salvation, so he saves us. And then what does he do? What's the balance? He assures that salvation. He guarantees it. Lest if he didn't guarantee it, we'd all lose it. All of us. Said that for many times, and that means no one's going to be saved. So he he gives us this gift of salvation, and he keeps us into the salvation, and that's a balancing thing that Satan was was trying to discredit. If you say that only the predestined are saved, then what are you saying about everybody's individualized salvation? If you're saying oh, a bunch of people think they're saved, but they're not really saved, only the preselected are saved. If there is no individualized salvation, if salvation is forced, if it's compulsory, if it's a preselection, then there's no reason to respond to the gospel. Because the people who respond that don't have the salvation can never get the salvation. The people that have the salvation have no need to, to, to respond to the gospel because they've been preselected. Have you been preselected for salvation? Job proves you have not. You have not. Okay. Stop there. I ran way over. Do I have more? Yes, I do. I didn't even begin this subject. So next time we're together, more Job. And more fractals.